This is where our theology really does impact our daily life. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And this is the Christ and Culture podcast. We have an exciting Christ and Culture conversation for you today. But first, let's begin with our segment, Ask the Profs. So, Dr. Keithley, this question comes from one of our students. Are you ready for this? What is theological liberalism? Well, that's a remarkably uh, easy question to answer, actually, because 125 years ago, there was the great liberal fundamentalist controversy. And a theological liberal is not someone who votes Democrat or wears a ponytail. That, those are not the, the descriptions of someone who's a theological liberal. Fundamentalism became known by holding to the great five fundamentals of the faith, four of them about Christ and one about the Bible. His virgin birth, his sinless life, uh, his vicarious death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection. And fifth, uh, the affirmation of the infallibility and inspiration of Scripture. Uh, the reason they held to those five is because a theological liberal was someone who denied uh, the person and work of Christ in a classic sense, and they denied uh, the, the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture because a theological liberal in the 19th and early 20th century was someone who had embraced the Enlightenment view of the miraculous and decided that the Bible needed to be demythologized, that all of the mythical elements, the miraculous and supernatural, needed to be eliminated, yet they still wanted to hold to that there's something there about Jesus that was worth following. And so you have some very famous uh, liberals uh, the great German liberal uh, Fred, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher is, called, is often called the father of, of modern theological liberalism. In the United States, you have some very famous uh, American Baptist liberals. Uh, one that comes to mind is Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was the pastor of the Riverside Church. Now, he didn't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He didn't believe in the second coming of Christ, nor did he believe that we would be resurrected. Uh, he, he, but he believed in the immortality of the soul. Um, so you, you'd think, what, why in the world uh, would he even call himself a Christian? And that's because he was someone who was quite taken by the teachings, the ethical teachings of Jesus, and he felt like that was the important thing to teach everyone. So that is what a theological liberal is. So a couple questions on that then. Is that, um, given the fact that the, those definitions break down really clearly in the early 20th century during the fundamentalist controversy, would you consider that definition of theological liberalism what's ha what we're seeing today, or is, are we in a different day of what we mean by some kind of a liberalism? Yeah, that's where I want to push back by calling someone a theological liberal because they have a different opinion than I do about, let's say, you know, I'm a complementarian and they're egalitarian. Well, I happen to know a lot of egalitarians who are also inerrantist. Now, what we're having is an exegetical and theological disagreement. They're not liberal. 
I just think they're mistaken. Uh, and so we can talk about a lot of things in which I have a disagreement with someone. I'm not automatically to assume that they have, quote unquote, gone liberal. There's something else going on. There are other labels that are appropriate here. I do think progressive mm, yeah. versus conservative yeah. in evangelicalism are appropriate labels. That's, there are many progressive evangelicals who identify themselves that way. Now, one of those, if you'll notice the fifth one, uh, the affirmation of the infallibility and uh, authority of Scripture uh, within the 20th century, that, that pretty much became known as uh, the inerrancy debate. And I do see some who are abandoning the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, from the historical perspective, yes, they have moved towards theological liberalism when they do that. So what's the difference between theological liberalism and what we might otherwise think of as just heresy? I'd have to say that someone who embraced theological liberalism as defined by someone like von Harnack and, and Fosdick, they obviously have some very heretical understandings of who Jesus Christ is and what he did. Typically, someone who would say, okay, this goes beyond error or heterodoxy uh, and has now embraced heresy. Heresy, I think, typically needs to be reserved for those things, those errors that threaten someone's eternal destiny. Okay. That is someone who has denied who God is as Trinity, someone who's denied who Christ is in terms of being uh, the divine son of God who has paid for our sins, um, and who's denied what salvation is, that it's by grace. Mm. So th those are what we call first order first tier items and uh, and and to depart on any one of those is to go into heresy so in other words with with liberalism and heresy there are places where um, liberal positions might also be heretical positions but yes. there may be some that we might say that's a liberal position but you're not may not necessarily be a heretic particularly particularly about scripture yeah yeah uh, there are, i mean uh, i there are those who embrace what i'd call a neo orthodox understanding of of scripture where they don't hold to inerrancy and yet they have an orthodox christology and understanding of salvation i think they're in serious error yeah and i think that they have embraced uh what historically has been a, a liberal view of scripture that's a wrong trajectory. I would push back very strongly. But I would still look upon them as a brother and sister in Christ because they have not descended into the heresy yeah. concerning the person and work of Christ. So one last kind of nuance on this, just, just to continue to clarify the difference between liberalism and heresy. So someone who might hold to Mormon doctrine, hmm. liberal or heretical? Yeah, that's a great question, because there is an instance where someone is not historically liberal because they've not, in, they've not embraced the Enlightenment worldview where they're trying to, to demythologize. No, no, there we have someone who is actually heretical, even though they embrace the, the miraculous and the supernatural. And we can go ahead and put other cults in that category. I'm thinking now of Jehovah Witness yeah. uh, and yeah. other uh, uh, Christian science, yeah. where they have um, not just aberrant views of Christ, but 
very dangerous understanding. And, and completely unorthodox in the sense that they, they have no connection whatsoever to the ancient confessions of the church, say the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed and those kinds of things. And notice what happens. Uh, as the early church fathers noticed, if you depart on Christ, you depart on salvation. Yeah. And in every one of those instances, whenever they no longer see Christ as the Son of God who came to save us for our sins, they no longer see salvation as a work of grace. Mm. Every one of those uh, groups end up teaching some type of salvation by works, and that is heresy. Yeah. We're not talking liberalism here. We're talking heresy. Very helpful. One last reminder, before we jump into our conversation, our upcoming conference entitled Exploring Personhood is next week, February 10 and 11. Registration starts at just $10, and a virtual option is available if you're not uh, nearby and can't join us in person. Go ebt and reserve your tickets at cfc.sebts.edu. Today in our monthly roundtable discussion, we're discussing the inherent and eternal value of all human life. Joining us today are Dr. David W. Jones, Professor of Christian Ethics, Senior Associate Dean of Graduate Studies, and Associate Dean of Theological Studies. Dr. Jones, you're a busy man. And Dr. Ben Holloway, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and History of Ideas. So let's begin this conversation by defining some terms. We are talking about the inherent and eternal value of human beings. Well, let's start with the first term, inherent. I think someone like Peter Singer may say, uh, may disagree and say that he doesn't see any reason why a sick child should be given a greater value than a healthy animal. So why should we be using animals to find cures for sick children? So what do you mean when you say the inherent value of human life? Well, inherent has, has to do with something that Uh, is not dependent on something else for its value. So, for example, uh, the value of a person doesn't go up or down depending on how many people love them or uh, depending on how many sort of uh, proper functions they possess. Uh, so someone can be, uh, can lack uh, various capacities for sight or uh, for hearing, and their value doesn't decrease. And that's to have inherent var value or intrinsic value is perhaps a better way of saying it. Uh, the value is independent of its relationships to other things or other people's approval of it. Um, the human life has intrinsic value. And it's an inestimable value in that you can't put a price on it or uh, you know, carve it up in some way. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that you possess because you exist. And so any time a human being exists, it has intrinsic Uh, value, and that's not dependent upon whether it's uh, fully functional or, or, or any of those other sorts of things that might make someone more valuable than, than not. Okay, well, you use the word possess. What is it that humans possess then that makes them so much more valuable? Let me um, jump in there and say, well, I mean, I think we would all agree, and I think a theme here of our discussion will be that we're made in the image of God. Yeah. Right? The, possess, uh, possess, possess the divine yeah. image. If I could backtrack just a second, you mentioned Peter Singer. I hope this uh, doesn't get cut out of our, our podcast, but the, you know, the... Well, if it's really you know, good, you know, it's really, just, I promise like, you, it'll be left in. Let me say, you say this, I really like Peter Singer. Now, really? I, I, I mean, you just, you know, as, as somebody you'd like to have dinner with, is that what you mean? <laughs> well, actually, I, I wouldn't actually mind that. That would be an interesting meal, I'm sure. Now, I completely disagree with everything he says and writes, probably at least 95% of it. Okay. 
But I really like him because I think he's one of the most consistent ethicists I've ever read. He's a man who, who denies that God exists. I mean, he's a on record avowed atheist. So he obviously doesn't believe that we're made in his image. Right. He believes that we're just creatures, you know, that evolved. If that's true, then he gets it, that a human being is no more valuable you know, than a dog or a cat. We're all just creatures. So to, uh, so to, to value sick human children that we're trying to find a cure, uh, for which we're trying to find the cure, whatever ails them, to use then animals to try to treat them this would be a version of speciesism? Speciesism, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, what, do yeah. we mean, what does he mean by speciesism? He means that you are, you're favoring humanity simply because you are a human being. He says that makes you strikingly similar to a Nazi, that you are placing an undue value upon that which is like you because it is like you, which makes you a speciesist. I mean, Singer will say things like, um, you know, a, a functional golden retriever is more valuable than a disabled human infant, right? Because his only basis for assigning value is utility. It's the ability to function and to contribute to the world. Uh, and so he says things, you know, like we've said. And again, I, I love that because he's so consistent. He actually, he understands the rules of the game that he's playing. And one of his big critiques is that the world is full of secularists, non-Christians, uh, who deny that God exists and then arbitrarily assign value to human beings. And I think that Singer actually is more consistent uh, than many of the people whom he is critiquing, that is at least the non-Christians. <laughs> um, again, I, you know, in saying I like Singer, what I mean is that I, I like his logic. I like his consistency. I, I get your point that he has a consistency to him that you can respect and that he critiques other secularists who want to deny God's existence and yet wants to have an ethical system that seems to depend upon the existence of God. And so yeah. they, have, mm. they have imported uh, certain things that they perhaps don't recognize they've done so. Let me go ahead and put Pete's hat on for just for a moment. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And let's go ahead and just get ourselves in a, in a great deal of trouble in this podcast. So I think of all of the people who have pets. Now, I've had a number of pets, and I've had, uh, uh, I've had dogs that I've loved, as, you know, just with all, you know, as, as a boy, I, I can think of how I loved uh, my pets. Um, I, there, in fact, one of my first dog, it, its name was Pete. So maybe there's a thing there. Um, but... There seems to be a phenomenon uh, in our modern culture in which uh, people seem to have an extraordinary affection for their pets, ways in which they will admit that the pet is replacing children. Now, perhaps there's reasonable uh, causes for that. Maybe they're elderly and children are not, and they don't have any children, grandchildren. This, is, this meets a, a wonderful emotional need. Is that simply what's going on here, or is there something more at work? I see you're looking at me since I opened up the can of worms here. <laughs> yeah, well, the, just uh, jump I, right I, in I'm, there. I'm tempted just to punt this one over to Dr. <laughs> Holloway, but my two cents on it would, would be this. Um, in a sense, yes. I mean, I think there's several things in play here. But to the degree that we, we flatten out the creation and there's no distinction between human beings uh, and other created animals— 
I think that does cater to uh, sort of an elevation uh, of non-human animals to almost like human-like status. And thus we have people calling themselves pet parents and all those things. And This is Dr. David <laughs> Jones. <laughs> yes. right. yeah. Who else can we say that you are that, will, that we could, they could send the emails you, to them? You know, I, I will say this, though. The, um, I think there are some other causes there that, that we can skip over. But it, it does testify to the fact that, you know, you, you can't get out of the box, Right. I mean, like God actually created us to do what he tells us to do. We're actually made to be in relationship with him. You know, we can deny that he exists. We can deny that human beings have significance. But nevertheless, we're, we're still going to sort of mimic the relationships that we were designed to be in. Right. And we were designed to fellowship with each other. Uh, and thus, Hence, I think this comes out a lot in maybe this whole sort of pet phenomena that you're getting into. Well, and then and then to go back on the frustration that Peter Singer feels, and this this goes to the fact that uh, despite someone may claim to uh, not believe in God and not believe in the Imago Dei, and yet we're as to your point, we're wired in such a way that we naturally, quite intrinsically, value human beings in a way that we we may not even be able to understand. Yeah. Uh, let me let me go to the second part of the definition. It says that we affirm the inherent and the eternal value of all human life. What do we mean when we talk about the eternal value of human life? Well, I mean, the only thing you can say about eternal value is that it is there when the thing exists. So if a human life is an existing thing, it possesses value. And that's because of it being made in the image of God. And that's a, a part of its being, if you like, that can't be taken away without it not existing. So mm-hmm. sufficient for you being a human being is being made in the image of God. And it's also necessary for you being a human being uh, to be made in the image of God. And as soon as you're not made in the image of God, you're not a human being. That is, uh, those things go together. And that means wherever you exist, you have this intrinsic value. It doesn't get taken off. It's not added to you or added later or then taken before you end. Uh, if it has an eternal value, there must be some type of eternal nature to the human yes. condition. Uh, I mean, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his own mm-hmm. soul? Mm-hmm. In other words, are we saying that humans have an eternal destiny? Is there the continuing self? Yeah, I mean, as long as as long as a person exists, and that uh, that's to introduce another concept entirely. But um, as long as a human life exists, that human life has this intrinsic value in virtue of being made in the image of God. And you so notice there, it's a strong claim not about our affection towards human life, or as we might towards a a uh, a, a pet, for example, we may have a strong sense of affection towards our cat or dog. Uh, but this is a claim that regardless of our affections, uh, we, could, we could be devoid of all affection for human life, life. In fact, there are people who find it very difficult to have any affection for anybody. But it, it changes not one whit the value of the life uh, that we're talking about. So your affection towards it doesn't matter. It's ir- irrelevant to your value. Uh, your value uh, goes on regardless. And that's not true of our affections for all sorts of other things like pets and other possessions that we might have. Um, this this value is something that doesn't uh, is not dependent upon someone's affection, and that gives you something much more rigorous about value uh, than thinking of all sorts of things that you think are valuable in the world. For example, I, I singers claim that you know there are certain functions that 
uh, human life is made valuable in virtue of that if you lose those, you lose value. Or that uh, you actually lose being a person. You're, right. Well, the you're, person, no longer, you're no longer a human. Exactly. And yeah. personhood then is, is, is linked to having those capacities. Mm-hmm. But again, in, if you think about personhood as a slightly different concept because personhood not only is indicative of a value of an object. So if a, per, if a thing is, an, is a person, it's valuable. Okay. Uh, perhaps we could say that, but also that it has a moral status. There are certain rights it possesses in, being, in virtue of being a person, and like a the right to life and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. That, that, uh, that sort of um, uh, – if you want to say we're in the category of things that are persons, you're either in it or you're out of it. You don't uh, join the club by acquiring certain capacities. Uh, you just are in it by existing. Uh, and if you exist and you have the image of God, you are a person. And that gives you uh, the right to life, for example. And that's so, so we don't st- – we don't try to look at a zygote and a fetus that is developing in the womb and try to figure out when this, uh, this growing entity becomes a person. Right. In, in contrast, which you're, if I hear you saying correct, we start with the foundational truth that this is a person yes. that is developing into its true potential. Yes. And there could be, because of the tragic effects of the sin, uh, of, of the fall and, and sin, that in one way or another, those uh, full potentialities don't happen because of certain birth defects, other uh, deformities are things that may happen. Yet, this is a person. Yes. And and that's how we are operating. Mm -hmm. So then let's talk about this. We can obviously see how we're we're going to talk about uh, abortion and pro-life issues. Mm -hmm. What about other issues such as euthanasia and quality of life? Uh, Dr. Jones, how do you talk to perhaps a room full of pastors who are talking, okay, when do I advise my parishioner mm-hmm. who is struggling with a loved one? Mm-hmm. How best should I think about these things? There's several guidelines I think I could give that would assume and would endorse this idea of the inherent and eternal value of, of life. And one of the things about saying that life has inherent value, that we're made in God's image, uh, that we can never lose our image-bearingness, that it's, it's essential to us. One of the benefits of that is that we then don't have to come up with sort of an arbitrary functional sort of line in the sand. We can say that life from the moment of conception is human life. It is valuable. Uh, and we don't have to figure out, well, when does that fertilized egg actually become a human being or become a person or do things you know, like Peter Singer uh, and his, his, his crowd would do to say that you can be a human being and not be a person. You could gain personhood. You could lose personhood. We don't have to ask those things. Uh, we can say you know, even that for the elderly dementia patient uh, in the hospital bed that they still are a person. They have as much value inherently as they've ever had. That being the case, then we ought to treat them uh, as, as people uh, and do things for them that we would do for anybody else who might have the capacity and the ability for perhaps more function uh, because of being in better health, uh, but is nevertheless no more of a person you know, than that dementia patient. Uh, and so in one sense, it, it makes the answer easier it may not make the actual um, real-life experience of it any easier, right? I mean, we all have grappled uh, you know, with elderly friends, parents, grandparents, and dementia, can- cancer, all these things, right? 
And we know that it, it's quite difficult, uh, you know, practically to deal with. But there's a sense in which the practice of it actually becomes a little bit easier, uh, and if I could even use the word tolerable, when we know in our hearts and our minds that this actually is an image bearer uh, of God. Uh, this is one for whom Christ has died. If they're a believer, this is a son or daughter uh, of God, even. And so uh, I think that that's sort of one of the broad guidelines. I'll throw out maybe another one that might be a little more controversial, um, mm-hmm. but I think is, is, is important. It's the notion that you know, although we are all image bearers of God, we all have inherent value, and we will never gain or lose uh, that value, that doesn't mean that life has to be a technological fight to the finish. Right. right? I think I know and, where you're headed here. Yeah, and, and what I mean is, you know, with modern-day medicine, you know, we have heart-lung bypass machines, mm-hmm. right? The, uh, we have incredible abilities, and, I mean, thank God for modern medicine. But that doesn't mean that we have to keep somebody's heart beating and lungs inflating indefinitely. Right. right. That there may come a time, you know, where somebody is, the phrase I use, irretrievably dying. Right. You know, where they have a matter of perhaps days or hours left to live. And I think it, it, that it is completely acceptable and moral, and it's not an affront to their image bearingness to say, you know what, it, it's time actually to, to let them go. Not that we're going to stop feeding them. You know, or you know, mm-hmm. turn off the HVAC and take the oxygen out of the room, right? We're not going to do something actively to end mm-hmm. the life. Right, but passively, yeah. we might allow them to expire, realizing that you know what, they may d- die a few hours sooner if we don't do X, Y, or Z, but they're going to be more comfortable, uh, and they're not going to ever get better. They're not going to live another week. I have, uh, as a pastor, found myself in, in the situation where families say, Grandma says she doesn't want to go on the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Should we should we require her? No, mm-hmm. no. If she does not want to, mm-hmm. then this is this is not this is not euthanasia. This yeah. is allowing God to to uh, you, you work through the natural processes. Yeah, and, and, and common sense, you know, would say, well, if she's undergoing you know, some surgery and she's going to be on the ventilator to stay alive during the surgery, and she's forty three years old. We're talking a very know, different a, scenario, a different thing, right? Yeah, exactly. 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 Well, this has been a, a wonderful conversation and it's been very helpful. I think that uh, all of us appreciate uh, the, the challenges of the kinds of questions that we've raised here, but this is where our theology really does impact our daily life. I think that one of the things that may not be appreciated, and I know from, from my personal experience of, of caring for my parents in their last years, um, it, it was a challenge. It was an ordeal, and I think that many people will talk about the challenges and, and, and the ordeals of dealing with somebody who is very ill and, 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 and someone you love having such needs. I found that God used them in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, th- I think we can hear sometimes the elderly saying, I don't want to be a burden on others. Well, okay, I appreciate that, but it could be that by allowing others to minister to you, you are being an instrument of grace and sanctification in in their lives. So I think that uh, everything, even these end-of-life issues, have profound theological implications. I'll, I'll throw out an article recommendation uh, that you know, the listeners could Google and find. Um, the ethicist uh, Gilbert Melander wrote a great article, a short article, titled, I Want to Be a Burden to My Relatives. 
Oh, that's a great title. That, yeah. That's and, yeah. And he was saying just this. He, he was saying, you know, I, I don't want you know to necessarily you know fight you know life to the death, but w- once I do age and and I, and I do need help caring for myself, uh, that that can be incredibly helpful to my children, to my other relatives. And he was speaking out of the same thing, Ken, that you just mentioned was his experience uh, of caring for elderly family members and just the sanctification uh, and the blessing that brought to his life. And as you said, I think that's an often overlooked thing. It really does transform, or at least has a profound impact on how one views life. Dr. Holloway, Dr. Jones, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. This is Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. As we wrap up today's episode, Eddie Wu joins us to discuss the tension that Asian Christians feel at Chinese New Year. Do you know what year it is? You may be thinking, it's 2022. But I'm talking about the year of the tiger. Chinese New Year is here. Chinese New Year, also called Lunar New Year, is the largest holiday for many Asian peoples in terms of scale, importance, and family traditions. For many Asians around the world, this is the biggest holiday of the year. The celebration of Chinese New Year includes traditions that have been passed down for generations. Children and teens receive red envelopes, or hongbao, containing money from their family. They set off firecrackers to scare away evil spirits, and they follow a strict list of things to do and not to do. Families travel long distances to reunite and celebrate together by eating large meals of dumplings, noodles, shrimp, and other Asian dishes. They make sacrifices to gods and ancestors for the hope of blessings and prosperity in the coming year. All in all, Chinese New Year is the largest Asian holiday celebrated around the world. Asian believers must carefully navigate family dynamics to remain loving members of their household, but also maintain their faithfulness to Christ. Although Chinese New Year is meant to be a time of celebration and joy, it can become a time of tension for Asian believers in two ways. First, Asian believers experience religious tension. Chinese New Year began as a ceremonial day for praying to gods or deceased ancestors for blessings and good harvest. Many Asians grew up performing the motions of worship and sacrifice to their ancestors or gods, not fully knowing the reasons why. These idolatrous practices thus become expectations. Asian believers feel intense pressure to participate in these religious acts. Not participating will incur severe shame and condemnation from family and friends. Second, family dynamics add to the tension. Many Asians still have family members who hold staunchly to the traditions of Chinese New Year. In most Asian cultures, family trumps individuality, and each family member is expected to do what's best for the family rather than allowing individualistic expressions. Thus, even a kind refusal to participate in the holiday celebrations is not always an easy task. Refusing to participate invites shame upon the entire family, guilt on the believer for not performing the wishes of the family, and possible disomen and separation of the believer from his or her family. 
Due to the deep, long-standing cultural and family traditions, resolving these tensions is difficult. Asian believers must carefully navigate and tread their family dynamics, be loving members of their household, and also maintain their faithfulness to Christ. Instead of celebrating the joys of Chinese New Year, Asian believers may feel the weight of these family and cultural expectations. Often, these Asian believers will face tensions alone, as most Americans are either unaware of the holiday or lack understanding of the cultural and family background. What are some ways you can pray for Asian Christians at Chinese New Year? You could pray that Asian believers would wisely navigate both the tension of family and religious pressures. Pray for the persecution and deep shame felt by many Asian believers during this holiday, as some have been disowned from their family for their faith. Pray for the Asian peoples who celebrate this holiday, that they would come to seek blessings and prosperities not from false gods, but from the Lord. Finally, pray that you would not miss this opportunity. This is a great chance to share your faith with our Asian brothers and sisters around the world. Eddie Wu is a Ph.D. student in Christian apologetics and culture here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he also works as the IT operations manager. He and his wife, Erica, live in Wake Forest with their two kids. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, do us a tremendous favor. Go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. Seems like a small step to take, but it goes a long way in helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.